Good morning. Welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute. My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion on uh, America's drive for energy independence, fueling the oil boom, question mark. We think it may very well might be, which is why we're holding the forum, but that shouldn't surprise you any. Um, we couldn't find a better person to talk about this issue uh, than today's uh, guest, Professor A.F. Al-Haji. Uh, some of you may very well be aware that it's been about 20 years since anybody in academia really paid a heck of a lot of attention to uh, oil markets which is not too surprising. When the markets collapsed in 1986, a lot of economists had spent a lot of time uh, nosing around in these issues, went off to other things. I look back in my old files, I see even Paul Krugman used to write about this sort of thing, and he doesn't anymore. So it's actually, if you were to troll around academia and look for people who are teaching in universities, who are credentialed economists and who study oil markets, world crude oil markets for a living, you might have a hard time finding people to uh, uh, discuss these issues with. Uh, our guest uh, this morning, Professor A.F. El-Haji, is one of the few people you would find. Uh, he is an associate professor at the College of Business Administration at Ohio Northern University, where he held the George Patton Chair of Business and Economics. Before joining Ohio Northern, El-Haji worked at two universities that uh, are very strongly affiliated with the energy industry that I'm sure many of you have heard of, the University of Oklahoma and the Colorado School of Mines, which is quite the place to be, I understand, these days. Uh, he established and managed the uh, Gulf Energy Program in Dubai, and after a successful start, he left the program to establish Ataka, a f the first energy magazine in Arabic. His research focuses on the role of monetary and fiscal policies in mitigating the impact of high oil prices, the impact of exchange rates on the world oil industry, and measures of energy security in OECD, China, and India. Many of you might have seen Professor Al-Haji discuss some of these issues, particularly the issue of oil prices and the dollar in an op-ed in the Financial Times. I believe it was last week. Uh, maybe two weeks. Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. Um, he is a syndicated columnist and a regular contributing editor for one of the industry's premier publications, World Oil Magazine. In addition, he is an associate editor for Oil, Gas, and Energy Law. He is the energy columnist for the major daily business newspaper in Saudi Arabia, and his articles have appeared in numerous countries and in more than 10 languages. He is a published author with more than 500 papers, reports, articles, and columns to his credit. He continues to contribute to academic journals and international publications, including the Energy Journal, OPEC Review, Journal of Forensic Economics, Energy Policy, Energy and Environment, Journal of Energy and Development, Industry and the Environment, the Oil and Gas Journal, Middle East Economic Survey, and Dialogue, to name just a few of many more I could read. He's presented his work to various governments, international organizations, international oil companies, investment firms, and professional organizations here in the United States, Mexico, China, India, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the UK. Professor Al-Haji developed PetroTrade, a computer program to assist oil-producing countries in determining their trade policies in today's market. Currently, he is developing an energy security index for OECD countries, India, and China. He's received many awards, including the Teaching Excellence Award and the Outstanding Mentor Award at the Colorado School of Mines. He is an honorary associate at the Center for Energy, Petroleum, and Mineral Law at Dundee University in Scotland and a member of the Honor Society of International Scholars. He is an active member of several organizations, including the International Association of Energy Economics, the U.S. Association of Energy Economics, the American Economic Association, the Western Economic Association International, and the Middle Eastern Economic Association. Uh, Professor Al-Haji came to my attention through many of these uh, journals some time ago, 
And I can tell you that as somebody who struggles to understand what's going on in world crude oil markets on a near daily basis, he's been very generous with his time with me in explaining what in the world uh, uh, is the meaning behind the data I'm trying to, to, to examine on any given day. He's been a great friend, and he's been an invaluable assistance to my work here at the Cato Institute. And I think you're going to find his comments very interesting today. So please join me in welcoming Professor A.F.L. Haji. I'm going to move around because I cannot stand still, so uh, please forgive me if I kind of keep moving around. <clears throat> I would like to start my presentation with the following picture. This is the picture of my grandparents when they got married. When my grandfather was 36, he was diagnosed with a disease, and doctors give him six months to live. Six months to live. You have heard this joke before that God created economists to make the weathermen look good. <laughs> now, here is the end of that joke. Ladies and gentlemen, here is my grandfather at his 100th birthday. So we economists could be wrong by 1%, 2%, 3%. Could be wrong on the oil price by $10, $15. But look, physicians were off by more than 60 years. And no one is saying anything about it. However, the reason I, want, I showed you this picture, because when my father turned 100, he decided to write his memoir. And his memoir became a guiding book for me in every sense. In his book, he said that, of course, he lived in three different centuries, and he participated in every war you can imagine. He said that he witnessed 15 killings in his life, and he lived enough to see every killer being killed. What is the wisdom of that? Well, the bottom line, which is the bottom line of my lecture today, is this. The short run is different from the long run. Because if he died when he was 36, as doctors predicted, he would have seen the injustice in life. But he lived enough to see justice. The short run is different from the long run. Let's apply that to our lives. Let's apply that to the oil market and try to understand it. This is one of the lessons that I learned from his memoir. Again, the short run is different from the long run. But before I leave this picture, I just want to say something that everyone should know. My grandfather is Syrian. My grandmother is Italian. My grandfather is a Muslim. My grandmother is Catholic. My grandfather is an Arab. She is European. And if a Catholic and Muslim can make it for eight years of marriage, anyone can make it.
since he is Syrian and she is Italian, I can claim to be half Italian, half Syrian, or half Syrian, half Italian, any way you want to look at it. But given stereotyping by Fox News and HBO about Syrians and Italians, I am afraid to be labeled as half terrorist, half mafia. <laughs> All prices will remain high. And there are many reasons why they will remain high, but this is my main emphasis on why they will remain high. And my today, today's presentation is going to focus only on the first one, on the rhetoric of energy independence. Of course, declining dollar has an impact. Power shortages in OPEC members and the growth in domestic consumption in those countries is going to reduce exports and push prices up. So I'm going to focus only on the first one today. We wish life to be this way and this easy. But we know this is a dream. This is just a fantasy. So what is reality? Here is reality. The F-22 Raptor. 30 gallons of jet fuel per minute. Fantasy. Reality. Four 600-gallon tanks, two 600-gallon tanks when it, with four missiles. The bottom line here is this. The United States cannot be the world superpower and the military superpower and energy independent at the same time. In fact, being energy dependent on other countries, where you get power from Japan, for example, for the bases, you get oil from Dubai ports, from Dubai, this enhances the power of the United States. And it's not exactly the opposite. So the United States cannot be the superpower of the world and energy independent at the same time. We have to depend on something. Here is technology. You need to run this technology on some sort of energy. What is it? You cannot run advanced technology on something like this. You cannot use such energy that was used thousands of years ago. Why? Because advanced technology requires certain type of energy. The energy that we need today and in the future has certain characteristics. It's condensed, compact, efficient, and saves time. The horse does not save us time here. We need the type of energy that saves us time. <laughs> we can eliminate dependence on oil, but at the expense of what? Are we Those guys do not depend on oil. Are they better off? Do they save time? We have to put our dependence on foreign oil and energy in perspective. About 40% of the U.S. energy consumption comes from oil. More than 
half of this is imported. Therefore, when we talk about dependence, we have to be careful because only about 20% of our energy comes from overseas. Only about 20%, and about half of it comes from secure sources. And mostly we are talking about Canada and Mexico in this case. Now let's flip the coin and look at the other side. Only, we depend only on 20% of imported energy. But let's look at OPEC members and look at their dependence. In most OPEC members, oil represents 90% of their export revenues, 40 to 70% of their GDP. So who is more dependent on oil in this case, and who should be worried about dependence on oil, the oil-producing countries or the United States? It's unfortunate to see that the, the following trend in the United States. Republicans are linking oil to terrorism. And they say, look, the next crisis is a terrorist attack. And to prevent that crisis, we have to eliminate our dependence on oil. Democrats are saying, look, the next crisis is global warming. Elect me. I will prevent this crisis by eliminating dependence on oil. And then others are saying, like this guy here, saying that, look, the major problem in the world is dictatorship. It's the old dictators. And if we eliminate dictatorship, then the world is better off. And one way to eliminate dictatorship is eliminate dependence on oil, because that will make oil cheap, and then those dictators or those dictatorships will collapse, and then we are better off. All of a sudden, through the political spectrum, everyone is making oil the enemy, and I wish it is that easy. Just eliminate dependence on oil, and then the world will be a better place. But Okay. So, oil is the enemy, but let's look at the result of that. What are the results of this behavior? First of all, especially for the Republicans, if we are going to eliminate dependence on oil, what about the future of the Middle East, and what about the future of Iraq right there in the middle? We know that the Iraqi economy is dependent completely on oil. Now eliminate dependence on oil and make oil uh, cheap at $5 or $10, how you are going to build a new country in Iraq, and how you are going to support the government in Iraq, and how you are going to make Iraq stable without money. And what about the rest of the world? What about political instability? What about civil wars in those countries? And when they become poor, when they extend their hand, they need money, they need help, who is going to pay for that? Eliminate dependence on oil. Are American taxpayers ready to subsidize the Saudis when oil prices are at $5? Civil wars, guerrilla wars, who's going to pay for that? And even if we eliminate dependence on oil and we are 100% secure, is the United States going to pull out of the Middle East regardless of what happened in that part of the world? And what about trade? What will happen to the U.S. exports to those countries? 
What's going to happen to the U.S. exports to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, and others? And can we handle this decrease in exports because of that? Let's look at the U.S. one more time. When we talk about energy crisis, first of all, let me make this clear. We are going to have energy crisis simply because of government interventions in the oil-producing countries and in the oil-consuming countries. Second, in the United States, when we, uh, or one of the reasons why we don't have energy shortages today relative to the past, and we are paying high price simply because we do not have price controls. If we have price controls like the 70s, we would have major shortage today. But thanks to some freedom in the market that allowed prices to go up and uh, allowed uh, demand and supply to determine prices at a high level. But if we look at the United States and the major energy problems that suffered from in recent years, beside the price, beside the increase in the price, California power crisis. OPEC members do not export power to the United States. Power outage in the Midwest. OPEC members and the oil producing countries do not export power to the United States. The collapse of Enron. I'm not going to say anything about that. Shortages of natural gas. OPEC does not export natural gas to the United States. Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, the ethanol requirement, the devaluation of the dollar. You can see the, all of these things that caused major energy problems in the United States are self-inflicted wounds in a sense. They have nothing to do with the outside world. What that means, eliminate business on oil. You cannot get rid of any of those. Those, those problems are there regardless whether you are dependent on oil or not. Well, is it Russia? But we don't import any oil from Russia. And of course, I don't know why the economists basically have this picture, because the issue really is natural gas, and it's not gasoline. So I don't know what, what came to their mind when they have a picture like this. If we are completely independent of the rest of the world, and we are off oil completely, or we are going to produce our own oil, which is most likely case that even if we become energy independent, we produce more oil in the United States from very, in various ways. And let's say that whatever the Bush administration and the Democrats and future administration are going to do to increase oil supplies. Whether you are 20% dependent or 40% or 90%, or 1%, the price of oil in the United States will be the same. So let's say we are completely secure and we don't import any oil, and we have a major crisis in Venezuela and Nigeria, and oil prices go up to $200, what the price of oil will be in the United States? It will be $200. So dependence or independence basically is not going to uh, shield you from the price shock that's going to go throughout the world. Unless you go to price control, and then you have real energy shortages that comes from the policies, the domestic policies, not from the international market. Let's go back to that picture again. 
and look at investment trends in the oil-producing countries and how those investment trends basically are reacting to the rhetoric of energy independence. Those countries are taking the threat seriously. What if oil becomes obsolete in the future? Or what if the United States develop, develops other technologies that compete with oil and they reduce their imports from the rest of the world? What will happen in this case? If we study investment trends, we see four reactions to the oil-producing countries. Let me mention here something that is important. One of the hats I wear, basically, is taking complex policy issues or complex issues that companies uh, try to present to the public and transform them in a way that the layman understand them. And this is a case in point here where I'm going to show you how I can take policy issues, basically, and transform them into issues that people can understand. We can sum up those policies this way, or the reactions of the oil-producing countries. We have the lion's reaction, the tiger reaction, the rabbit reaction, and the wolf reaction. In the case of the lion's reaction, the oil-producing countries will ignore the rhetoric of energy independence, and do what they do best, produce oil. In this case, of course, they need to increase their capacity to meet demand and just ignore all the rhetoric. But I wish that was the behavior. What we see is we see what we call the tiger reaction. The tiger reaction is to increase production capacity, have access capacity on the side, and flood the market whenever you feel threatened. So the tiger here stands for revenge. And if they have enough excess capacity and they flood the market and oil prices go down to $10, then we can say goodbye to ethanol, goodbye to all the new energy technologies that are being developed today. Just the same thing what happened in the 80s. When the prices declined in the mid-80s, it killed most of the alternative technologies. And those countries basically are building access capacity to be used sometimes, or at least to cap the development of alternative energy. Because if you are developing alternative energy, and those countries have seven or eight million barrels of access capacity, you, you put that in your calculations, you put that in your mind because you are afraid that they may flood the market someday and oil prices decline. The rabbit reaction, the third one here, is to believe the rhetoric. To believe that oil is going to be obsolete. To believe that the United States will not import any foreign oil in the future. In this case, you sell your oil today, you take your money, and instead of investing or reinvesting back in the oil industry, you take your money and invest somewhere else in anything else, including alternative energy. The problem here is we know that the decline in productivity of the wells and the decline in production is going to be faster than the growth of alternative energy. And therefore, we are going to have a massive shortage in this case. Let me go back a little bit to the tiger reaction here. 
if they use that policy and oil prices decline, we know what the impact of that. It's not only going to kill alternative energy, but it's going to kill all the marginal wells too. We've seen this in the United States in the mid-80s. We've seen it in 1998 and 1999, which means that world oil production is going to decline in the next period, and then prices will go up, and we are going to experience shortages too. But the fourth one is the most intriguing, the Wolf reaction. They believe that there is some truth to this energy independence, and it may materialize. We may end up with some alternative energy that competes with oil. So what they do? They take billions of dollars from the oil revenues today, invest it in energy-intensive industries, and export the products to the United States and to the industrial countries where oil is embedded in petrochemicals, in aluminum, or, or any other products. So they still export oil, but it's embedded in something else. In this case, they can compete with anyone else in the world because oil is obsolete and oil is so cheap that their products are going to dominate the world. So the United States now is not dependent on foreign oil, but it is dependent on petrochemicals, foreign petrochemicals. It's dependent on foreign plastic. It's dependent on foreign aluminum. It's dependent on, 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 and you can go on, on uh, with a long list of products. So the last one basically is exporting oil embedded in some other products. If you look at the investment patterns of OPEC members today, you see that they fit the tiger, they fit some of them fit the uh, rabbit, and some of them basically, or most of them basically, are following the last policies. If they are going to build those industries, and they are following this, but we know for sure that the rhetoric of energy independence is not going to produce alternative energy on time or at the right time. So what's going to happen is, very soon, the industries that are being built in those countries is going to consume more oil and gas, and there will be less oil and gas available for exports. At the same time, there is no alternative technology to cover that shortage. So what's going to happen to world oil supplies in this case, and what's going to happen to oil prices in this case. So we can see that the reaction to energy independence is very serious and the impact of it is very severe because not only prices will go up, but we may experience serious shortages of oil supplies. And all of a sudden, we are trying to talk about energy independence to ensure that we have energy security and now we end up with energy insecurity. To wrap up the discussion, let's remember the following. In the lion's reaction, they need to expand their production. In the tiger reaction, they need to expand their, their production. In the rabbit reaction, they are going to build other industries. And in the wolf reaction, they are going to build other industries. They need technology, and they don't have it. They have to import it, but they are using the market system to get that technology, and they can get it. They may not get the best at the best price, but they will find someone to supply them with that technology. 
But the issue is really worse than what I said about energy crisis. Because even if they go this route, even to increase capacity, they need technology. And for technology, you need brains. And to build brains in those countries, they need good universities. We know for a fact that we do have a shortage of skilled workers in those countries. I'm talking about natives. I'm talking about nationals of those countries. And they need to send them overseas to be trained. This will explain their behavior, why some countries are sending thousands of their students to the United States and other countries. Why? Because they know the impact of this technology and they know they need to build those brains. And that's why their universities basically have new vision and they are trying to cooperate with other universities. We are ending up with a cooperation between uh, universities and OPEC members and uh, Europe and the United States and Singapore and Australia and others. So they are ending up with that cooperation to build the human resources needed to provide the energy to the world. Which means the solution to the energy crisis may not be in the energy field or cooperation between the governments of the consuming countries and the producing countries. Their intervention in the energy markets is not going to solve the problem, but maybe cooperation on education and, trans uh, and uh, transformation of knowledge to those countries may help. Maybe cooperation on the education part is going to help the, uh, uh, solve the energy problems of the future. To conclude, politicians who are calling for energy independence should not ignore the fact that the market has chosen a fuel, oil in this case, that is not among their current fuel preferences. The main lesson today, politicians win in the short run, markets win in the long run. Political instability that results from declining oil revenues must be added as a potential cost of oil independence, and energy independence will remain a fantasy. I hate to be that pessimistic about the future, about possible energy crisis, increases in oil prices. One of the lessons I learned from my grandfather is to be optimistic and to always end my presentations in an optimistic way, on a rosy note. Ladies and gentlemen, for my grandfather, the past, for you, the present, and for our future, the children, here is my rosy note. Thank you. We'll have uh, an opportunity for you all to ask questions of Professor Alhaji in a moment. I wanted to ask a few to start out the conversation. Um, my, the, first, the first question that comes to mind, Professor, is uh, how can reasonably well-informed people believe U.S. rhetoric about energy independence? I mean, OPEC producers are, are reasonably well-informed people about world oil markets. They're reasonably well-informed people about uh, uh, regarding their customers' needs. And if you listen to U.S. 
political rhetoric about energy independence, any reasonably well-informed person would just have his eyes rolling in the back of his head like a Vegas slot machine. I mean, most of what we hear about uh, uh, getting off oil, uh, whether from the Republicans, we hear about uh, investing more in nuclear power. From Democrats, we hear about investing more in solar and wind. And, of course, we all know that you could build 100 new nuclear power plants and wind power plants and not affect oil imports hardly at all since we don't use much oil to produce electricity. And until we get battery technology, we can't use those technologies to move cars or other vehicles. So th- that aspect of the, of the American, uh, uh, of American rhetoric about energy independence just seems unmoored by – and I can't imagine that the OPEC member states are unaware of that. And if you look at transportation markets, the closest thing they have to worry about as far as a competing fuel is uh, ethanol. And ethanol today, after you adjust for energy content, is about $1.20 a gallon more expensive than gasoline on wholesale spot markets. And you could say, well, conservation is another, another response uh, to uh, high oil prices. But as we all know, if you re- increase the fuel efficiency of a car, you're going to get more miles traveled. You lose a lot of the gains that way. And we don't see much demand response. I mean, so if I'm an OPEC producer, I, just, I would have a hard time taking any of this seriously. And I'm wondering why it is you think that they are. The reason is because this rhetoric led to spending billions of dollars in subsidies on alternative energy. And all of a sudden, in addition to the three groups I mentioned, all of a sudden the private sector now is joining them. And part of the private sector now, if you listen to the rhetoric of uh, the ethanol industry, they talk about energy independence too. And when they talk about the benefits of their industry, all of a sudden this energy independence comes out. So it's the spending. The actual, the same way OPEC is investing, those guys are investing too. So it is the billions of dollars that is spent that made them believe there is something going on there. If it was just rhetoric without spending, you know, that, that what you said is absolutely correct. But when they saw the massive amount of subsidies provided to the ethanol industry and to other alternative fuels and uh, the actions of some European countries where they are spending uh, a lot of money on wind and and solar, then they took that seriously. So uh, to conclude, the, the entrance of the private sector into the game made them believe that part of this rhetoric uh, is scary. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, uh, OPEC production and upstream capacity. Uh, I gather from your presentation that you think that there has been less investment in upstream capacity than we would otherwise have expect should have expected given price. Correct? Uh, if w- without this rhetoric, and of course there are other factors, some of the money that, uh, um, uh, or let me uh, rephrase that. We would not have seen the resurrection of the petrochemical industries in those countries where they are going to take part of the oil and gas for domestic consumption, that would have gone to the market anyway. Mm-hmm. So even without increasing capacity, we would have seen some of the domestic consumption basically gone to exports rather than for domestic consumption. Mm-hmm. But there is a case to be made that uh, the, since the emphasis, the strategic position of those countries is to diversify income right now, so they are taking most of the oil revenues to be invested in the alternative choices of income rather than to f- focus on, uh, on the oil sector? Well, there, there, there are two competing 
hypothesis with yours, it seems to me. If we want to, if we look at the the uh, the uh, relative lack of investment in upstream capacity, we could say, well, it has to do with uh, American rhetoric about energy independence and their and their uh, uh, fear of what that might mean in the future. But if I were uh, if I were a, a fellow who spent a lot of time at the oil drum or some of these other online websites where peak oil is discussed, they would argue, no, there's just not a lot of oil to bring to market. It has less to do with uh, American rhetoric about energy independence than geological reality about reserves. That's an alternative hypothesis for that lack of investment. Another one would be profit maximization. I mean, Bob Samuelson had a column in the Washington Post a few weeks ago blaming OPEC for purposefully constraining the market to maximize revenue and that this isn't so much a matter of fear of American energy independence but a, uh, an attempt by OPEC to uh, replay the early 1980s, this time with a more successful outcome than their last attempt at maximizing price. What do you think about those two hy- – I, I gather uh, you're not particularly impressed by either of those hypotheses. I wonder uh, why. Regarding the first one on peak oil, I don't believe, especially when it comes to the Gulf and Saudi Arabia, I don't believe this is the case. Uh, it has been the policy of Saudi Aramco for a long time to uh, only add what they produce that year. That is a policy. It's not geology. Uh, uh, so that is not the case. For the second one, uh, I heard it over and over from several OPEC uh, officials that no one even dreamt of 70 or $80 oil, let alone 100 No one was even thinking of this may happen. When oil prices reached 50 basically, some people went crazy and said it cannot be. So in terms of private maximization, this was unthinkable. And no one thought about it. And therefore, it cannot be that they restricted output. What happened is they've been producing at capacity most of the time. And even when they announced a reduction in production, in my view, it wasn't by choice. There were technical factors that forced them to do it, but they don't want to talk about it. So they covered that by a decrease in production. Remember, they've done that when oil was $70 and does not make sense for anyone to uh, 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 not to sell oil at $70 at that time to wait until oil prices decline and then sell them at a lower price. Uh, So I don't believe it's an issue of uh, profit maximization as much as just uh, uh, luck. And uh, uh, they uh, uh, basically they took the ride. Finally, one of my uh, one of the people I think pretty highly of in the uh, in the uh, uh, economics literature on this subject is Maury Edelman. And Edelman once argued that the main difference between, say, a private sector uh, oligopoly that controlled oil production in the Middle East, like we saw arguably uh, prior to OPEC with the Seven Sisters and their investments there, versus say a publicly owned uh, or a, uh, a a publicly maintained cartel via OPEC, is that the time horizons for uh, OPEC member states is going to be shorter than the time horizons for uh, investors, even if they're in the business of managing a cartel. If that's the case, and it certainly seems to be a reasonable thing to think that it might very well might, given the uh, instability in the Middle East, wouldn't there be an incentive on OPEC member states to look more short-term than long-term, suggesting there's an incentive to produce now rather to invest later? Okay. um, I'm I'm sorry. I misunderstood this. Who has a longer time horizon, the state or the companies? The companies, according to Edelman, anyway. 
the, uh, so it's, in fact, uh, part of the explanation why oil prices went up in the 70s is exactly the opposite. The argument was that states have longer time horizon than the uh, companies because the companies uh, will go and just get the oil, sell it, and just go somewhere, el- somewhere else, while the state basically wants to maximize uh, the oil revenues by reducing production. And we've seen this uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia. We've seen it in Iran, especially after the revolution, when they decreased their production from 6 million to about 3, 3.2 million, uh, uh, so to maximize it over the long run. Uh, so the other, the other hypothesis is exactly the uh, the opposite, uh, uh, and the reasons were advanced uh, for that were at uh, that time the dollar was declining, real interest rate was below zero, so there is no incentive for the countries basically to produce more, get the money, because what did the other substitute for their investment in this case? And all of a sudden, oil in the ground basically generates money while it is in the ground. So that was one of the theories that explain what what they've done at that time, which is exactly the opposite of what he suggested. One last question. How do we really know what uh, production capacity is uh, uh, in OPEC member states, what investments are being made, and what upstream uh, production we might see in the future? I mean, whenever I've looked at the data and talked to economists like you who study this, they tell me, don't trust EIA data. It's all very dodgy. Don't trust reported numbers out of these companies. They all have reasons to lie, obfuscate, and mislead. Uh, don't look at these upstream investment figures because they're being selective about what they're releasing. Everyone in the cartel has an incentive to be as opaque as possible. And if that's all the case, how do we know that there's either slack capacity or lack of slack capacity? How do we know what's being spent upstream and what's not? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. There, there are problems with the numbers, of course, but let's remember that the, I mentioned technology on the slide. They don't have the technology, and therefore they have to sign contracts with Western companies. And those contracts basically are public. So it's not – I don't mean that the details of it are public, but at least we know that the service companies that sign contracts and we know why. So there are some indications on – or you can judge the numbers based on some indications whether to – as an uh, educated – you can make an educated guess whether those numbers are correct or not based on information on those contracts and those uh, – the information from the service uh, companies. And, of course, uh, uh, the, uh, the issue of excess capacity uh, uh, is not only related to the numbers. We do have problems with definitions, too, because what is the difference between uh, excess capacity, real excess capacity, surge capacity, for example? And OPEC members use all those uh, interchangeably, but they are different. Uh, uh, so real capacity, basically, for some oil companies – uh, national oil companies is what they can produce over a two-year period. Others look at it as only 90 days. So it's not only the numbers. We do have problems with the numbers and the definitions, mm-hmm. too. The other thing is what OPEC oil ministers refer to as excess capacity is any oil they have. But it does not mean that oil is, is marketable. It does not mean that oil is usable. And that's why sometimes the OPEC numbers are higher than what analysts look at because the capacity they can market is less than what they say. Mm-hmm. Well, enough of my questions. It's time for some of your questions. So uh, I'm going to randomly choose people 
to speak. We have a microphone that uh, will be delivered upon you as soon as I uh, call you out. Identify who you are and uh, ask your question. Try not to uh, give talks or else we'd have your name tag up here. Uh, I'll start with my friend Ken Malloy here down in front. Thank you. I wish I could be as sanguine about your last point. Politicians win in the short run. Markets win in the long run. I look out at energy markets more broadly than you're talking about now. You're talking about oil. But if you look at uh, uh, the debate on electricity, Republicans take a command and control on the hard asset side of the market. Democrats take a command and control on the soft side of the market. There is no constituency or coherent uh, advocacy for uh, market-oriented energy policy, with the exception of what must be a very lonely job for Jerry. Um, where is the coherence going to come from uh, when you have all of the candidates on both sides of the aisle uh, committing to uh, climate change and committing to uh, the goal of energy uh, independence? Um, I, I am very, very um, pessimistic about your last point about markets in the long run. I see lots of threats in the United States to a coherent energy policy based on markets in the United States. Uh, I agree with you completely. It seems like I have to clarify what I said. What I meant is the policy failure, the policy failure indicates the success of the market because it's the market power that make those policies fail. I don't mean that we are going to converge in the future and go to markets. No, what I meant by was that the failure of those policies indicates that the market is the winner in this case by their failure. But I agree with your point. Jerry, your, your take on Washington Well, Washington uh, is rather un, uh, uh, unmoored when it comes to sensible conversations about energy, but I'm a little less cynical or pessimistic. Actually, I'm very cynical, but I'm less pessimistic. Um, think about what happened the last time we had this, price, this kind of a price boom in oil markets, 1979, uh, 1980, 1981, or even before that in 1973. What did the politicians do at that time? We had price controls. We had rationing. We had subsidies for all these renewable energies. We had binges like the ethanol binge, maybe not quite as devastating over the long run. I think the ethanol story is going to be a one for the record books. But by and large, the government intervened far more aggressively in the 1970s than they have today. What happened? Energy prices did indeed collapse at some point, and all those policies went away. And a fellow got elected in 1980 campaigning on eliminating the Department of Energy and removing those price controls. So... Even though looking at the newspapers today and looking at the candidates' energy policies and looking at what congressmen are saying, one's certainly tempted to reach for strychnine or a shotgun, uh, the reality is, is that in the scheme of things, these are relatively mild responses compared to what these very same American politicians have done in the past with these kind of price booms. So we were able to survive that. Maybe we'll survive this okay. That's barely, he doesn't hit me as hard as he used to. Yeah. Yes. Sir. Richard Wallace, I'm a private investor. I don't have an affiliation with any uh, recognizable firm. Um, I wondered if uh, this talk you gave us is something you present to the students, and if so, what their reaction is to it. The 
the, the college uh, age group reaction and the college politics. And maybe at uh, the same time you could say uh, what your um, the university uh, administration and fellow professors' reaction is to it. I did not present this one in particular, but I do have a seminar in uh, energy economics. And part of the seminar, basically, students have to act as if they were uh, uh, congressmen or congresswomen, and then we will have a debate for two hours where the media is invited and the president of the university will be the moderator. Uh, and one of the uh, – this is a true joke that happened with me. Uh, we split them into Democrats and Republicans. We have few libertarians, by the way, so that's why we were not able to do it. Uh, and uh, after that, my students in other classes have to write a report about the uh, debate. And I walked out of the room, and there are at least 100 people in front of the door. And this young man ran into me, and he said, Dr. Al-Haji, Dr. Al-Haji, you know, I thought all along I was a Democrat. I found out I'm a Republican. <laughs> Not sure so, that's good news, but... <laughs> So, so that, 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 if you are asking about the impact, that's what uh, at, at least it helps people find themselves. Here in front. If you hold up for the microphone. But we are we are simulcasting this to millions over the internet. So there you go. I'm Julian Josephson, uh, Bootstrap Press, a local NGO here in the Washington area, mainly in involved with science, environment, and so on. Um, Dr. Al-Haji, you mentioned earlier that the OPEC countries, some of these countries of which you spoke, did not have their homegrown technology for further industries, and so they have to build this up from abroad. And I don't know if I can couch this correctly, but I thought if I'm reading the news correctly that Iran is building up its homegrown technology and in many ways independent of um, foreign help. They, they're doing it homegrown, and could this have an effect on your predictions, you know, number one for downstream and number two, that possibly the country's doing it also because they may be girding for war? Okay. Uh, regarding the answer uh, of this question, I would like to refer you to uh, my friend Hussein bin Yusuf. He is sitting there, and I think he can answer this uh, this question better than uh, uh, than me because he is familiar with the situation there. So, if you don't mind giving him the microphone there. Well, thank you. Uh, Iran also has a much longer experience in the oil and gas. Uh, the industry is 100 years old. But it's, uh, Iran has made quite a bit of uh, advancement, not only in oil, but also gas and petrochemicals. So you're right. And even under sanctions, Iran has uh, made quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, um, attempt to uh, raise the production, and successfully so. Uh, but there, there. Uh, let me um, um, now that I have the microphone. Let me um, ask a couple of questions and make a couple of comments regarding your questions and the investments within the uh, the OPEC. Uh, if you uh, look at the size of investment versus the uh, the growth national products or GDP, 
ratio of those for uh, OPEC countries are much higher than the industrial countries. So in that term, yes, they are making more investments. Uh, but do we see it in the total, you know, the size of the production? In some cases, we do. Uh, in some cases, we don't. Um, I like to add to what my uh, good friend, uh, Dr. Elhaji, mentioned um, on the reserve side. Uh, he talked about the production, but also their definitional problems with reserves, what we call reserves. But they do, uh, in, in majority of the cases, have improved the size of the total reserves, actual reserves, after the nationalization and after the oil companies, private oil companies, left those, those countries. There were high gradings in the past, and they tend to uh, basically focus on optimizing production rather than maximizing production in majority of the cases. But excess capacity is, it was a very interesting point that you talked about. But the excess capacity, to a great extent, was not designed originally Yes, some during the uh, b before nationalization, oil companies wanted to control, so there was some excess capacity. But the majority of the excess capacity uh, was created after there was a major drive outside OPEC to develop reserves and develop uh, capabilities. So in that case, then all of a sudden after uh, second energy embargo, uh, the uh, energy shock in 79, you saw a huge excess capacity. And that's when Saudis and others tried to use that as a tool to control prices and, and, and eliminate some of the competition. But I don't think it's going to be repeated. They're not going to make that major investment and, and drive the prices down. So it's, it's a... It's a tool that is it's going to hurt them a great deal. But I, I remember when I started my work 30-some uh, years ago, there was a major talk. This was right after the, the Arab oil embargo, and, and we clearly looked at $100 oil you know, for, 90, for the 80s and 90s. So it's not that it came as a major surprise. And I do think that the lion option is the one that they are following because – they really, you know, with the key element, that excess capacity that you talked about. Thank you. Thanks. You're in front. Thank you. My name is Sonia Schott. I am independent journalist based here in Washington. I was wondering if you can talk about more on the role or the impact China is going to have as a replacement for the um, for the U.S. Uh, as a number one oil consumer, and what kind of impact does uh, this is going to have in the OPEC countries? Thank you. Uh, let me illustrate something that is very important. If we look at uh, the energy uh, or the uh, growth in demand for oil in China, we see a surge in 2004, and then a growth continues, but at a lower rate than 2004. One of the mistakes that happened in the predictions of the world demand and the demand in China was the outsourcing and offshoring that no one paid attention to in the oil market. We have thousands of companies that moved out of the United States, Europe, and Japan. They went to China. 
And what happened is, and I'm talking about modelers who were predicting oil prices, predicting demand, etc., that they used lags in those models. And when those companies moved and we have lags in the models, they already counted those companies part of the United States for the future. They already counted them part uh, of Europe, part of Japan. And that's why we did not see the surge that we've seen in China in those countries in 2004. Those companies moved to China and uh, uh, were not counted for. Then they increased the demand uh, uh, severely, uh, or, or they increased it uh, uh, substantially uh, in 2004. That caused major power shortages in China. That forced operators basically to buy small generators that run on oil. That increased the demand uh, uh, for oil, uh, and that's why we've seen the surge. By 2005, we've seen uh, more uh, power generation in China. That solved part of the problem. The globalization slowed down a little bit, so the number of companies that went to China after 2004 is less than before. And then oil prices continued to go up, which made private generation very expensive for those operators, so they stopped. And then some labor laws kicked in because, uh, uh, as I understood it, that uh, in the summer, during summer months, factories have to, op- to operate air conditioners for the safety of the, uh, of the workers, and the uh, private generation was enough only to run the machines, not the air conditioners. So they were afraid from penalty and government intervention. So we've seen a decline after that. What we see right now is the normal expected uh, growth that is related to 9 or 10% economic uh, economic growth. That's going to have two impacts. The first impact is it's going to put pressure on the world demand on one side, and then it's going to affect the direction of trade in oil in this case because it's going to divert oil from one place to other. And as uh, 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 an official in, uh, in the Gulf said that when uh, Others come to us, they ask, uh, they ask us about the quantity and the price. When the Chinese come to us, they never ask about the price, uh, which means that we can see how the trade direction is going to change toward, uh, toward China. The other issue I would like to mention related to China is the expansion of nuclear power. Many people think that the expansion of nuclear power is going to be at the expense of oil. It's exactly the opposite. The expansion of nuclear power in China is going to increase China's demand for oil simply because the government mandated uh, the working days for factories because of power shortages. And if power is available, then those factories are going to run uh, seven days a week, 24 hours. Uh, So they are going to run 24-7, and incomes are going to go up, and the demand for oil is going to go up. So the expansion at this time of nuclear power in China is going to increase China's oil demand. And again, I emphasize at this time. Let me ask you that. You didn't, you didn't say anything about price controls. China has, uh, has uh, controls oil prices. Uh, assume, I presume that affects demand to some extent. The U.S. price control regime, according to the Congressional Research Service, increased world crude oil prices by somewhere between 3 and 6 percent in the 1970s. And uh, I'm wondering what you think the impact of Chinese price controls on oil has had on demand in China, and then how it's also played out in other parts of the world. There are 
There are no market prices for oil in most of these Middle Eastern countries where demand is surging. I assume that those price controls have something to do with that demand surge. Uh, so, so what role does, do uh, government attempts to control price have on global crude oil markets? There, there are two issues to mention. Uh, the first one is uh, in China we do have price control and shortages at the same time. This created a black market. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> this, this created oh, a black market. tell more. That <laughs> created a black market, and uh, uh, it, the price in the black market is much higher than the regulated price in this case. Uh, if you look at China and other countries in terms of uh, regulation, that created smuggling too. So it's not only the increase in consumption in this case, but it's the increase in consumption in neighboring countries because of smuggling. Mm -hmm. So if you look, and I'll give, uh, this is one of the best examples to talk about, is in Syria. Uh, Diesel and gasoline prices are regulated in Syria. And uh, they are seven times, in Lebanon, prices of diesel are seven times the price in Syria. So a young man who is 18, 19 years old, basically, can become a millionaire over a period of one or two months by smuggling, basically arranging businesses, basically, uh, to smuggle diesel to Lebanon. And uh, uh, they use even uh, hoses, basically, for miles and miles to smuggle uh, not only tankers, basically. They smuggle the diesel through hoses. And people go to jail, and it's worth it because they make millions of dollars out of that. So what we see as a result is the increase in demand in Syria because of lower prices, and then increase in demand in Lebanon because they are getting the, uh, the subsidies, in a sense, indirectly through uh, uh, smuggling. And, of course, that created uh, shortages uh, uh, in, uh, in Syria. We see the same thing in other countries. Now we've seen evidence that uh, uh, petroleum products are smuggled outside Saudi Arabia because they are more expensive in Jordan and they are more expensive in Yemen and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, uh, so we are seeing the smuggling throughout uh, uh, the region because of uh, uh, price control. So the upshot is that uh, the regulated price is not really the market price, and so the price controls are probably having less effect than I might think. Correct? No, they are. Ha- but what I'm saying is they have an effect. They are increasing consumption within the country and outside the country mm-hmm. because of smuggling. Mm-hmm. So they are having an impact. They are increasing. What I'm saying is if there's, smug- if, if there's a lot of smuggling going on, then there's a black market price, so the price control may not be guaranteeing, may not be affecting demand that much since market actors are playing, paying real black market prices, not official price control prices. Because, because of the laws, because if you are caught smuggling, basically, there is a, there is a, a cost to that. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you sell it at a price that is lower than the market price to market yourself. So even in Lebanon, basically, they are not getting the Lebanese price. They are getting something lower than okay. the market price in, in Lebanon. And that that's is, uh, in a sense, fueled uh, uh, consumption. In the back, sir. If I understood your comments about China correctly, and I guess we all think this increasing demand from China will – uh, keep the prices of oil high over the next, let's even call it the long term. Then, flipping your argument on on its upside down, then with high oil prices, then the market will create the alternatives, uh, will uh, will create alternative uh, motor fuels and hydrogen and electric vehicles. 
and thus that'll happen anyway, unless you are, go back to your other argument that then the oil producers will simply flood the market and drive prices down to $15 to wipe them all out. I wonder how you respond. Uh, definitely there is a threshold, there is a price uh, for alternatives uh, to survive. And uh, $100, $110 basically is not the price. We need even a higher price than that. One of the reasons why, because with the decline in dollar, it's not only affecting the oil market, it's affecting alternatives too. And then with alternatives, basically, we do have some energy security issues, just like with oil. For example, uh, if you recall, President Bush was talking about hydrogen for a while, and then he switched to biofuel. One of the, re one of the problems with hydrogen is you need fuel cell for it, and to create a fuel cell, you need palladium. And there are only two countries that export palladium in the world, Russia and South Africa. While there are more than 30 countries that export oil, most of them are controlled somehow by the United States. So do you want to deal with Russia or do you want to deal with some other countries? Uh, so there are other, uh, uh, beside the cost, there are other issues related to energy uh, uh, security. Uh, in uh, in terms of excess capacity, we don't see it right now. At this stage, we don't have enough excess capacity, basically, to affect oil prices. Otherwise, we would have seen prices going down. Uh, but we may see it over the next few years if the plans that they are talking about materialize. Uh, but there is this threshold where we, we've seen it in the – and uh, Jerry alluded to that earlier – we've seen it in the 80s where things just flipped on the other side. Uh, uh, so we may see the same thing again. I believe, I believe that uh, 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 the high oil price that we see today is not enough to bring enough alternatives to affect the oil business. And at the same time, I believe that uh, this oil price is not sustainable in the long run for several reasons. One of them is the vicious circle of oil prices and the value of the dollar. And let me explain that quickly. We know that the decline in the dollar in the short run increases oil prices through speculation. In the long run, it reduces production and increases demand. So lower dollar increases oil prices. When oil prices increase, the U.S. trade deficits go up. When the trade deficit goes up, the dollar value goes down, and we continue with this vicious cycle. That's why it's not sustainable, because we may end up with $500 oil, but at what dollar, at what exchange rate in this case? If, if the dollar is just uh, one-tenth of the euro, then $500 is cheap in this case. We have two more hands. We'll have two more questions. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment on what you said about uh, ways to uh, reduce consumption or control prices. Um, there's been a number of attempts by many countries to reduce subsidies or eliminate subsidies. In many cases, unfortunately, in places like Yemen or India or Burma or uh, uh, Nepal, many other countries, uh, there's been riots after that. So there was no alternative to reducing those subsidies. 
But Iran, uh, to go back to uh, the point that the gentleman asked, uh, Iran has actually developed an alternative. You may not like it, but it is rationing. And it has worked. It has eliminated the, the possibility of, of uh, smuggling the products uh, outside the country. If you can only buy a certain number of liters or gallons per month, then there is no way of, of uh, you know, exporting it or, uh, you know, illegally. Uh, th- that problem is not, uh, you know, limited to Levant. In, in Turkey, uh, from Iraq and other places, it was very common. So when you have that kind of uh, imbalance on, on prices, that's the problem you're going to have. Iran had to make subsidies. The government had to spend tens of billions of dollars each year to, to uh, keep those prices low. So now they, they could not raise the prices substantially. Instead, they used an alternative. They used rationing, and it has reduced demand considerably, uh, over 20%. And the idea is catching up in other places. Syria, in particular, has asked Iran to, to basically help them out in, in developing that kind of a smart card that they <laughs> use and, and the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the concept of rationing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think if you ration something, it's probably going to become more scarce and you'll get less consumption of it. Not sure it's a good policy, but I understand that it may work if that's your metric. One last question here, and then we'll break for lunch. Um, I'm thinking about the, um, uh, the tiger uh, analogy, the tiger behavior. In, um, in 86 and um, mid-'90s, when... Um, the OPEC price dropped. Are you uh, ascribing that to, I'll use the word predatory for, for Tiger, um, OPEC behavior, or was it uh, driven by our double-dip recession in the early 80s, which uh, drove demand down, and it wasn't uh, predatory pricing by OPEC, trying predatory meaning trying to drive out alternative energy options. Thank you. What happened is to prop up uh, prices, the Saudis continued to cut their production and they cut it from 10 to about 2.5. And they tried to convince other members to cut, but other members needed the money and they were selling oil uh, at any price. So the theory goes like this, that they wanted to teach their partners a lesson, so they doubled their production overnight, and prices collapsed. So, in a sense, yes, it is, but it's to punish their friends not to do anything else. And they got what they wanted uh, uh, for a short period of time. And uh, uh, the issue came in, of course, for the price, came in from Saddam Hussein when he invaded Kuwait uh, uh, later on. But it is, uh, it is part of the Tiger reaction, which means that the Tiger reaction could be also to punish other members of OPEC in this case, but that's a different kind of uh, uh, sort of policies uh, to discuss. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, another factor that was in play here. One of the uh one of the little-known facts about the oil market from the mid-'70s through 1986 is that it was a, the price increase was accompanied by a massive increase in inventory holding, just massive. 
Uh, oil markets had never seen that kind of inventory before. And the, the, the reason for the inventory buildup was fear of future dearth. Private investors believed that the world was running out of crude oil. They saw the Middle East as becoming more and more militarily risky. And they were not releasing, even when economic incentives suggested that inventory buildup was inefficient and costly. There was a widespread belief that oil really would hit two, three hundred dollars a barrel by today. By 1980, by the mid 1980s, those beliefs were starting to fray. And I think that put a pressure on price and that helped trigger the slide that the Saudis were trying to arrest and they proved incapable of it. It's interesting. If you go back and you look at the production data, you find that OPEC production didn't really change all that much from 1985 to 1986 to 1987. What really changed was inventory holding. Basically, private holders of, of oil stocks released. And uh, that, that contributed to the market flood as well. The irony is, of course, is today there's a lot of data that suggests that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and government-owned inventory has been displacing private stocks. So whereas if, if, if oil inventory today were in private hands, you may well be seeing big releases. And, in fact, there's a lot of data to suggest that would be the economically optimal policy for an inventory holder is not to buy and hold but to sell. But because the SPR and other government inventories have displaced private stocks, those decisions are now in the hands of governmental officials, and they have virtually no incentive to release. They have every incentive to keep building because they, the, the reward, political reward system is that you want, to, you want to signal to your constituents that you're doing something about high prices, you're saving for a rainy day, you're doing something to uh, uh, hedge against future disruption, and all of that makes the market less uh, uh, flexible than it was back in 1986. Do you think – did I get any of that – uh, on the, terribly wrong. Regard, regarding the 80s, you are correct that OPEC production did not change much. But what happened is lower prices uh, eliminated all these stripper wells uh, uh, later on from the United States and other places. And uh, we've seen uh, a sharp decline in the second half of the 80s from non-OPEC. And, and that, that helped uh, prices to go up uh, uh, during that uh, period. Uh, the um, the issue of the SPR and private stocks, we do have statistical evidence to show that there is a substitution uh, between the two, that as the Bush administration basically increased the size of the SPR, we've seen uh, private stocks basically going down. So in a sense, uh, the government is subsidizing the, the, the oil sector by holding those stocks. The only difference is the, the release mechanism is completely different and its impact on the market is, uh, uh, is completely different. Let me ask you, I, I intended to break, but there's something that occurred to me I've never really quite understood. Maybe you can help me understand it. Um, though we don't have any real concrete numbers that I would take to a bank, we are told by most analysts that production costs in Saudi Arabia are somewhere less than $5 a barrel. Uh, a few years ago, this, uh, Saudi Aramco was advertising production costs at a buck fifty. Uh, that's probably gone up by now, but somewhere between a dollar fifty a barrel and five dollars a barrel. When production, and, and I understand that Saudi production figures, assuming that those figures are correct, aren't necessarily the same as Iranian production numbers or, or Kuwait production uh, uh, figures or anything of the kind. But given if that's true in Saudi Arabia. When oil is selling for over $100 a barrel on world crude oil markets and it costs you nowhere more than $5 a barrel to produce, how sustainable are policies and how, polit how politically and economically sustainable are policies which divert investment away from new production capacity? It just seems stunning to me that if there is more oil to be brought to market, that someone's not bringing it to market given that huge spread between what the market will give you for that oil and what your production costs are. 
Um, I've written an article. By the way, uh, you may see some of those articles and some of the graphs, especially on the SPR, on my website, alhaji.com, which is my first initial and uh, last name, and then click on articles. You can see some of those uh, graphs. Uh, I've written an article a while ago uh, basically talking about uh, this particular issue. And uh, I made it, uh, uh, in a way, just uh, uh, a conversation between me and my other colleague. And the question was, if you have a cow in Houston and the price of that cow $1,000 and you take it to New York, what is the price of that cow? And logically speaking, the price of that cow, it's either the market price in New York or it's $1,000 plus the transportation cost. The problem when we talk about production costs, we are talking about just the cost of transporting that cow from Houston to New York, but we are not talking about the price of the cow. And that's exactly the mistake that we see throughout. The $5 or $1 or $2, this is the cost of transporting the oil from the ground to the top, but what is, that, what is the price of that oil as something you own, just like the cow in this case? It's, it's an, an, a national asset or a private asset, and it has a price. So what is the price of that? And the issue here is, and I mentioned the cow for a reason, because a cow can reproduce, and therefore it's $1,000, that, and that's it, and they can, you can make more cows later on. But with oil, it cannot. And therefore, the price of the oil is not going to be the price of the cow in this case. It's going to be the price of a depletable resource, which we use the term in economics, we use the user's cost. So we cannot talk about the production cost. We cannot talk about the marginal cost of transporting the oil from the ground uh, to the top. We have to talk about what it takes to produce another barrel of oil in this case. And with the increase in costs... With the increasing cost uh, in recent years with inflation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you find out that once you start talking about the cost of oil in Saudi Arabia, it's not $5, and it's not $10, and it's not 20 In fact, and I'm going to throw this at you. It's, it may sound surprising. Maybe those oil-producing countries have been losing all along, even at, at $100. Here is why. Because this is a national resource that we don't know its price. We have to look at the substitute to find its price. And then there is another mistake in the literature. When the oil companies control the oil reserves in the Middle East, and I'm talking about Aramco partners in particular, if you look at their books, what they have there, they counted the cost of production, transporting that oil, royalties, etc., etc., and then they counted the cost of the fence and the patrol cars and the helicopter and the hospital, and the little hospital they have on the premises, and the, the clinics, etc. When the countries took over, all of a sudden, the roads that the company built become part of, became part of the transportation department. And the uh, fence became, and the patrol cars became part of the defense department. And the clinics became part of the health department. And all of a sudden, we don't see the costs the way the companies look at them because there are different parts of the government that control them right now, and that's why we focus only on the transportation cost of oil from below the ground to the top of the ground. You add all of those costs together with the cost of replacing oil, 
We don't know that, by the way. There are guesses. And to give you just one, get, one uh, estimate by Maury Edelman, he estimated that this user cost in Ecuador, and he did this about 15 years ago, is $165 by the dollars of that time, which means that Ecuador be losing money all along when they were selling their oil at 15 and 20. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you a lot for your, your discussion. And I invite you to all enjoy a libertarian free lunch upstairs in our Witter Garden.